said, uh, we are continuing our study in Revelation, and now we come to Revelation 13, which is weird. Um, So let's just read it. Here's Revelation 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive... To captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship uh, worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. (sighs) The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. God, thank you that you have given it to us. Thank you that you have brought us here tonight to study it. Father, and I pray now tonight um, that you would, again, strike a straight blow with the crooked stick. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So uh, it's been a little while, so we've got to back up. Let um, me give you a brief uh, previously on RUF at Carson Newman. Uh, we studied Revelation 12, and that was a... a Another crazy vision in Revelation where John sees this woman and she's giving birth. And then there's this big dragon that's trying to eat the baby. And then as soon as she gives birth, the child was swept up into heaven and she was carried away on eagle's wings uh, to be cared for in the wilderness for three and a half years or 42 months or 1,260 days or time, time and half a times, depending on how you want to read that. And And then the dragon tried to continue to chase the woman and... Then God was like, no, I'm protecting this woman. And so the dragon, we, the last thing we saw the dragon do was he went and he stood on the sands of the sea. And that's kind of 
some ominous uh, foreboding, foretelling there. Um, and in Revelation 13, we see why. But before we look at that, um, I want us to remember a moment in time where two brilliant entrepreneurs had a business, a business idea. And, and it was going to be a multifaceted entertainment company that was so intense it was going to go around the world twice for its clients. I am, of course, talking about uh, Tom Haverford and Jean-Ralphio Saverstein's idea of Entertainment 720. And uh, if you remember, they, they, they come up with this idea and they are trying so hard to make everybody believe that they're doing just so well. I mean, that, like, like Tom's giving out iPads and, and, and they've got all this like branded stuff and they go into this airplane hangar they've rented out and they've got like tigers and people that they just pay $100,000 a year to sit there and check their phones. And, and, it, and, it's, and it's absurd. And then, and then ben, ben Wyatt goes in and he starts looking at their financials and he's like, how are you not out of business like now? Like, you know, and, 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 and they go through and, um, and Ben just like breaks it down. And like, they're, they're not making any money. They're not doing anything. Everything that they're doing is a fraud. It's giving off the appearance of success. It's giving off the appearance of wealth. Um, but they were, they were actually failing miserably. And uh, led to a fantastic episode of Parks and Rec. It's one of my favorites where they throw the big party and all the guys are sitting in the, the park playing, um, playing the wooden flutes that Ron makes for Zorp or whatever. Um, but the question, the question that I, that I want to ask as we go into this is how do you spot a fake? How do you tell when something is fake? And we're going to answer that question at the end, but I want you to keep that in mind as we look at this, honestly, uh, maybe one of the most misinterpreted passages in the entire book of Revelation. We get these beasts and one comes from the sea and one comes from the land and then there's this number 666 and, you know, it's... So, how do you spot a fake? Keep that in mind as we look at these images. So the first thing that we see is that the dragon goes to the seashore and he calls the first beast which comes from the sea. And this beast has, uh, has 10 horns, seven heads, and 10 di- diadems on, uh, on each horn. And every head bears blasphemous names. And it's, it's part leopard, it's part bear, it's part lion. And the dragon gives it its power, its throne, and its authority. And this beast apparently has a mortal wound that is healed, and the entire earth followed and worshipped it. Um, so so crazy, uh, crazy imagery here. Um, it was given a mouth that uttered haughty and blasphemous words, and it exercised its authority for 42 months. So here's that number again, that 42, uh, 42 months, that, that this beast blasphemed God and his followers, and it made war on the saints. So what in the world is going on here? Like, what is this telling us? And the first thing that, that, that we have to note is that this beast is coming from the sea. And so in a couple of weeks, we're going to go down to Panama City. You should all sign up and go. RF Beach Week. It's going to be amazing. 10th to the 14th, $250. Go. But we kind of think of the sea as like a nice vacation. We're going to go and the sand is going to be, uh, the sand is going to be beautiful. And the ocean is, we're going to go swim in it and play in it and look at it. And it's going to be this like amazing, uh, like romantic thing where we like take pictures of ourselves at the sunset and post them on Instagram and it's going to be just wonderful because that's kind of how we view the sea but when you read scripture 
the sea is actually a place that is chaos. The sea is a place that represents the unknown. And whenever you see something in Scripture coming out of the sea, it is without exception an image of a kingdom that is hostile to God and his plans for the world. And so when we get into all this stuff about the horns and the heads and the diadems and the crowns, that that what John is showing us is that this beast that's coming from the sea is is a kingdom that bears the appearance of power. It bears the image of power. But with that power, he blasphemes God, God's people, and makes war on them. So every single one of these images centers on one thing, and it's power. Uh, One commentator says this, he says, When we are shown a beast whose power is not that of wealth or influence, but that of government, who combines all the powers of Daniel 7 and whose authority is worldwide, we see in him the principle of power politics, in a word, the state. And remember, John and his readers, they had an immediate context for this. They knew when they read John writing this, they knew immediately that he was talking about the Roman Empire. That they saw this, this beast that was everything that Rome encapsulated. I mean, if you think about it, Rome was all about power, all about expansion. But every generation has known something similar. Right? In the Old Testament, you see the nation of Egypt. You see the nation of Assyria, of Babylon, of Persia, of Greece, and of course Rome. And in modern times, we see, uh, we see communist China, we see the USSR, we see Saddam Hussein, we see Osama bin Laden, we see apartheid in South Africa, that, that you don't have to look very far to see the way that these things have played out throughout all of human history. These governments that just grow and grow and grow, and they, they position themselves as against God. And it seems like no matter how much progress we make, no matter how much we advance technologically, how much wealthier we get, how much we defeat world poverty, world hunger, all these kinds of things, no matter how much we do that, it seems like there's always something else that's going to come and fill the void of the evil empire that was left before. Like, it's, it's like, the, like eventually with Star Wars, like, we're eventually going to run out of fighting the empire. But it's like every time they kill the empire, another new empire just comes up. They just call it a different name. Like, it just happens over and over again. So the first question for us to ask then is, what do we do in light of a world that continues to have these kings and these empires? What do we do in a world that continues to value this power, to value this oppression? Look at verses 9 and 10. It says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is, is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. And so everything about this first beast screams, I have power. Everything about this first beast screams, I am the one on the throne. I am the ultimate source. But the consistent witness of Revelation is that this beast is not the one on the throne. No matter what power the beast or any earthly kingdom appears to have, John's vision in Revelation is that it is the lamb who is sitting on the throne. It is Jesus Christ who is sitting on the throne, not this beast. And so we endure the beast by remembering that it is the lamb who is the one who holds the ultimate power. And so if we go back several weeks ago, remember John's original vision, which is the foundation for this entire book. 
is that at the very center of all reality is the lamb seated on his throne. And there is no mention of beasts or emperors or world powers or anything of the sort. So if you put yourself in, uh, back in John's day and you're reading this and you see this great thing happening in the throne room, you immediately would have noticed that, hey, John didn't mention that Nero was in the throne room. In fact, John's vision of the throne room views Nero as so insignificant, he doesn't even mention him. And it's the same for us as we look at these evil kingdoms that exist in the world. They, they pale in the power of Jesus. So John is calling the church of his day to endure great persecution, and he's calling us to do the same. And that 42 months, again, we keep coming back to that time, um, and, and that's the reminder that this is going to happen in the entire time between the time that Jesus has ascended into heaven and the time he's going to come back. We're not talking about a literal 42 months or a little three and a half years. We're talking about this entire period of time between Jesus' ascension and his second coming. And the call is to endure. And even though, like right now, we live pretty comfortable lives, I'm not like a doom and gloom prophet. Like, I don't think the government's fixing to come and start putting us in jail. But like, we experience persecution. We absolutely do. And, and, so, and so our call is to endure. And the thing is that, that everything that we do in life is, is kind of aimed at helping us to avoid suffering. Right? Like, the whole, um, the whole like self-care thing that we're into right now and like the, the fitness influencers and all these kinds of things of like, ah, we're just trying to do everything we can to avoid suffering. If that's like psychological suffering or physical suffering, that everything we want to do is we want to learn to avoid suffering. But, but I think one of, the, one of the things that John is saying is that these lessons are not always meant to be learned, but they're meant to be endured. That instead of asking, why God, why is this happening? The saints around the throne ask, how long? How much longer is this going to go on? And I think, I think Judson is a great example of this because when Judson was learning how to walk, and Ford's kind of in this stage now where he's starting to like pull up on stuff. Um, but when Judson was starting to walk, he fell down a lot because that's what you do when you're learning to walk. Um, and so we would encourage him, we would pick him up again, and he would try to walk again, and he would fall again. And he would fall again and again and again. But eventually he started to figure it out. But it's not the kind of thing that you can just sit down and teach him. Like he has to endure the falling. He has to endure um, just constantly not getting it right until eventually he did. And so, and so how do you learn patience? You don't just read books on patience. You don't just read up on, on the 10 ways to deal with difficult people. Like you actually have to like, experience patience. You have to do it. You don't learn those things. You don't learn how to love people by just reading books on love. You have to learn to love people by loving them, by caring for them, even when they hurt you or they push you away. You learn these things by doing them. But what about on, what about on a personal level? Right? Like we can all kind of look at evil governments and be like, yeah, that's bad. We don't want to do that. But verse 13, 4 says that the entire world worshiped this beast. It says, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? What does this mean for us? And the question is, what are the systems that we ourselves are tempted to follow? 
Do we, do we look at our current political climate and think that capitalism is going to be the thing that's going to end up saving the world or end up destroying it? Do we think that socialism is going to be the one that's going to save the world or destroy it? Does the world somehow need America to be strong? Or can the world go on without it? Or maybe you don't care about politics. Maybe 2020 was like, I'm done with this. I don't care about this. I'm not paying attention to it anymore. So let me ask you this. Why is your academic performance more important than your friendships or your spiritual health or your physical health? Why do you sleep for two hours a night because you have to get more and more assignments done? Is it possibly because your pursuit of your grades is the thing that you hold on to to keep control over your life. But if you make the right grades, you'll get the right job and then you'll have the safe, healthy life that you've always wanted. Why do you, why do you use your friendships instead of investing in people? Is it because using friendships uh, lets you make and keep connections so that if you need to drop somebody, you've immediately got another one? Why have you never answered, honestly answered the question, how are you? Is it because maybe you don't want to appear to somebody that you're not okay, that you're not in control? How many times do you uh, take a picture and delete it before you finally post it on Instagram? Even on Snapchat, the thing that's supposed to be like, oh, like this is me all vulnerable and like raw. Like, I don't like that picture. But like, how many times do we do that? Why do we struggle with addiction? Why do we turn to pornography or alcohol? Why do we do these things? I think it's ultimately because we want to stay in control. We want to control our relationships with people so we don't ever have to deal with intimacy. We want to, uh, we want to pursue those things because, y'all, we are slaves to the beast in so many ways. Because at the heart of our sin is the idea that I will tell God that I run my own life. And if if God fits into that, if God fits into what I want to do, great. But if he doesn't, then bye. Like, I'm doing me. That our world pursues power. Our world will always value power. Listen to the conversations around social justice movements. I'm I'm not trying to single anything out here. But it's all in conversations of power. And when we read this in Revelation 13, whose nature is it to give up power? It's not ours. It's not humans. John is showing us with this first beast that we will pursue power by any means necessary. But then this beast from the sea calls for backup. And this beast from the land shows up. And we see a very different beast this time. That this beast comes from the land, which if the sea is a place of chaos and the unknown... The land is a a place of order and peace. That it speaks with the same authority of the first beast, and and it appears to be a lamb. That it it carries this presence, and and it it testifies to the first beast. It testifies to the the beast's mortal wound that healed. And, and, And this beast is very skilled at deception, right? So if the first beast is kind of an over the top, like overt, like I am, I am God, I am the power. The second beast is, is, is more covert. He's more subtle. And John's readers would have seen this as the Roman cult, the, the deification of the emperors and their divine right to rule. 
So like if you go through and there's a lot of interesting imagery here that we don't have time to get into, but when it talks about these blasphemous names and images and things, um, some commentators actually uh, have drawn the comparison from that to like Roman money that would bear the emperor's faces on them and these kinds of things. So what is this second beast? And uh, Alan Bosak, I've quoted him before. Um, he wrote an incredible commentary on Revelation. And, and he, he was a pastor in South Africa like during apartheid. And so like that guy has got a very unique perspective on Revelation. But he says this, he says, this is the false prophet who provides the religious or if you will, the theological justification which the first beast absolutely cannot do without. And Bosak points out that Pharaoh in Egypt, he didn't make himself a god. He had a whole bunch of priests that did. Ahab in the Old Testament, as he was pursuing uh, the, the, uh, the Baals, he didn't do that on his own. He had 400 prophets to assure him that he had the blessing of God. Herod in the New Testament, Herod had court theologians explaining to him who this child was. In the deep south, where I'm from, we used Christianity to justify slavery in Jim Crow. We used Christianity in the early stages of America to justify manifest destiny, to push those people out of their lands to take over. In, in, in ancient times, there was the divine right of kings, that kings had a right given to them by God to rule and to do whatever they want. In 2020, voting for Donald Trump or Joe Biden, depending on which side of the aisle you were on, was going to be the thing that was going to save the republic for God. Religion, indeed, is too narrow an identification of the second beast. He is, in modern parlance, the ideology, whether religious, philosophical, or political, which gives breath to any human social structure organized independently of God. And later... We come back, we're going to come back to the second beast later in Revelation that he is identified as the false prophet. And, and again, I, I want to just kind of keep digging into this for a second that this looks a lot like, like, like we have, um, and y'all might not know or care about these terms, but they've been bouncing around in my head, so I'm going to, I'm going to do this. Like, like there's this conversation about like, which is worse, like Christian nationalism or like critical race theory, right? And everybody's like back and forth and this is worse and this is worse and this is worse. But here's the thing. I think they're both doing what this second beast does. They both give off the impression that they're good. We should desire a nation that honors God with its laws. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that is what I think Christians are called to want. But we're also called to want to identify systems in place that seek to, whether intentionally or unintentionally, harm the weak and the vulnerable. So on the surface, both of those things look good. But the problem is that both systems end up exalting power above everything else. That they're all about getting power from one group and keeping it from another. And this is, not, this is not new. This is not something that just happened in the last 50 years. Paul planted a church in Galatia and within months was writing to them about a false gospel they were believing. I mean, like, like it was no time at all before Paul's like, hey, like here's the gospel, here's Jesus, here's all this amazing stuff. And then somebody else is like, eh, actually, you still have to follow the Jewish law. And it was like, it was seriously like no time at all. And the New Testament continues to warn about false teachings, not from without, but from within, right? Like if, if I give you the option tonight, like, hey, after large group, um, let's, go, let's go find some cocaine and do that. 
Every single one of you is going to be like, no, that's bad. We're not going to do that. But what are the, what are, at least I hope you are. If if not, let's have a, and I I recorded that by the way. So uh, if anybody listens to that, that's going to be an awkward conversation. But, but you, but you get, you get the point. Like, like the temptations from outside are not always, not usually the things that come and get us. But it's that, it's that subtlety from the inside. We see that in the church of Galatia that, yeah, like, yeah, Jesus saves you. But like, also look at this law. Look at this stuff from the Old Testament. Isn't that good? Yo, it is very, very possible for us to get Christianity wrong. It is very possible for us to be completely sincere in our motives, to have the right Bible verse to back us up and to be completely wrong, to totally miss the point. We don't, we don't like this. We don't like this at all. We don't like or want confrontation. But we go back to this thing that we say every week, that Christianity is based on a series of truth claims. There are things that the Bible says are true and things that the Bible says are false. And we have to continually go back to those things. When Jesus is tempted in the wilderness with Satan, he doesn't say like, hey, I'm God, shut up. He certainly could have, but he doesn't. He continually goes back to scripture to say, no, it is written, it is written, it is written over and over again. You all see the problem with this beast from the land is that it looks really good. It gives off all the appearance of the lamb. It performs signs and wonders. It attests to one who appears to have been killed and resurrected, but it is false. And what it ends up doing is devouring those who refuse to bow the knee. We look around the world around us, whether it's things happening here, things happening internationally, that these things seem like they're becoming more and more evident, or maybe they were always going on. We just have more ways to find out about it. So now we come to the mark of the beast. We've talked about the two beasts and now here we are. And y'all in the, in the crazy, like deep South evangelical world that I grew up in, we have loved trying to find out what this means. Um, and, 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 and this, the mark of the beast and like, who's going to bear it and what's it going to be. And the number six, six, six. And, you know, we've all kind of joked about it already that, you know, little Nas X has got his 666 pairs of shoes coming out with, uh, you know, commemorating Satan with human, whatever, like, and look, it, it is incredibly stupid to glamorize or market Satan. And that's not going to work out well for you, but I don't think that's the point. I don't think that's the point of what this number is. And, and, and honestly, every time, like when I see people doing stuff like that, I just see the DJ Khaled give like, congratulations, you played yourself, but that's a whole different thing. <laughs> I remember, I remember one time, one time when I was a kid, um, my dad and I went to the gas station and we got like some drinks and some candy and stuff and, and they rang him up and it was $6 and 66 cents. And my dad freaked out. He got something else to put it in there cause he didn't want to have to pay that much money. Um, there's the, there's the, the crazy, uh, monster energy drink lady. Like if y'all haven't seen this video, she's going into this whole explanation and actually, and actually what's funny about it is she's actually pretty close to what's going on with it. Um, but, but, but she's got the monster energy drink and like the, the monster is made up of like the three Hebrew vavs, which is like the number six. And if you turn it upside, it's like, it's, it's in, like, she's insane. It's crazy. We love that. And it, and it, and it, and it goes viral in part because she's crazy, but also in part because we're kind of like, huh, she, 
she might she might be on to something. I mean, I, I'm I'm a Red Bull guy, like you know. <laughs> or or how many times? Um, how many times? And this is again, this is maybe not reflecting super positively on me, but like how many times have I spent the Monday morning after the Super Bowl watching the videos, breaking down how all these performances were like Illuminati rituals, like summoning the beast, and like this is the this is the exact moment that Satan entered Beyonce's body, right? <laughs> That's a real thing. Like, it's a real thing. And she's done two Super Bowl halftime shows. What about the COVID vaccine? Right? Like, Bill Gates is going to put a chip in you. The Apple logo. I'm not even kidding. Like, that's a thing. Like, oh, like, Adam and Eve, they ate of the apple in the garden. It wasn't an apple in the garden. Like, the Bible never says that. But, like, we have loved, we have loved trying to figure this out. It's funny. It's fun. And when you think about it, like, it's actually kind of cool. Because, like, how many movies do we watch that, that we see this, like, major global corporation and they're, like, tricking the people into getting a shot and getting something inserted into them and there's these random occurrences of numbers. Like, it gets really, really exciting and kind of intricate. And, and, and here's the here, – this is the funny thing. Like, when you start to look at what 666 I think John is actually intending to do, it's kind of boring, <laughs> Like it's not as nearly as much fun as as uh, you know some some Karen uh, explaining why this energy drink is going to like. But look what this mark does. It enslaves the rich and the poor. It enslaves the small and the great, the free and the slave, with a mark either on the forehead or on the right hand. So that freaks us out, right? Like oh, like like they're, like like those people are like they're going to be marked by the beast. But the question is not whether or not you receive the mark of the beast or not. The question is whose mark do you receive? Because if you look in Revelation 14, which unfortunately we don't have time to look at, but we see this 144,000, the army of the lamb, the entire people of God, guess what they bear? They bear the mark of the lamb. They have God's name on their forehead. And so you will either be marked by Christ or you will be marked by the beast. Dennis Johnson says, The beast's mark, like the seal of God applied to the church, is not some outward tattoo or insignia on the body, but rather a symbol of the beast's ownership and control of his followers' thoughts and deeds. Immediately after this discussion of the beast's mark, the sealed army of God appears in the company of the Lamb, their champion, and the seal they received is interpreted as having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. Ancient Israelites were to tie the law of God on their foreheads and on their hands in order to signify that their thoughts and actions were in submission to the word of the Lord. Now the beast, assisted by the false prophet, blasphemously demands the world's universal allegiance. See, God, from before time, has marked his people. He has put his name on them and claimed them as his own. And now the beast is trying to mark his But here's the point of the mark. It's the point of the number. This whole thing has been a counterfeit. Both of the beasts are trying really hard to convince us that they're powerful. Both of the beasts are trying really hard to convince us that they are the ones in charge. The first beast, don't don't miss this. When it says that the first beast has a mortal wound that healed... What this beast is trying to convey to you is that it died for you and rose again. But that's what a mortal wound is. And it's trying to tell you that it's going to be the one to save you, that this power is going to be 
what is going to save you. And think about the story of um, think about the story of the rich young ruler, right? This this man comes to Jesus and he's got tons of money and he's like he's like Jesus, what do I have to do to be saved? And Jesus is like, keep the law and the commandments. He's like, I did that. And Jesus is like, cool, sell all your possessions. And so many times we take that as like, oh, like this means you can't be rich. You have to be poor to be a Christian or whatever. And the point is not that this guy had a lot of money. The point is that this guy's money had him, that he was enslaved to it. And so the number 666 is really just a counterfeit. Different studies have connected that number to the Emperor Nero, the Emperor Domitian, Barack Obama, <laughs> Donald Trump, whoever. You, you, can, you can draw, you can connect these numbers to anybody. But I think John is very clear. He says, this is the number of a man. It's six. It's like seven. What does seven represent in Revelation? It represents God. It represents completion, perfection. Six is like seven, but it's incomplete. 666 is like the Trinity, but it is not. And it gives off all of the appearance of being so. Again, Alan Bosak says, John is saying, look, his number is 666. Three times it is almost seven. It is almost perfect. It is a human being. Don't be confused by the symbols as if they spiritualize the struggle, taking it out of our earthly history of sweat, blood, and tears into some esoteric battle between cosmic powers of good and evil. It is a human number, a human being abusing power that was given for the sake of good, overstepping the borders of what is permissible. In this way, John reminds us, uh, John reminds his readers that evil is not just a spiritual force. It has a human face. So in other words, what this mark, what this number is doing is it is desperately trying to convince you that it is good. It is desperately trying to convince you that it is righteous and it is desperately trying to convince you that it is powerful enough to save you. But no matter how hard these, this dragon and these beasts try, they are not the ones sitting on the throne, that it is the lamb. So I want to come back to the question I asked at the beginning. How do you spot a fake? How do you know when you're being tempted to worship this beast? And uh, um, there was a Netflix documentary. Ben, this one's for you. Uh, there's a Netflix documentary that I watched last week called Murder Among the Mormons. Um, it's a fascinating story. It happened in the 1980s. Um, but there was this guy named Mark Hoffman. And he had a knack for finding these very rare historical documents that pertain to the Mormon church. And he was selling them to the Mormon church for tens and even hundreds of thousands of dollars. Which like now that's a lot of money, but in the 80s that was astronomical. But one day, uh, Mark Hoffman was about to make this big sale. And, um, and all of a sudden these three bombs went off. It killed two people and it injured a third. And the third one was Mark Hoffman himself. And so what, um, this, it didn't make sense. People started trying to figure out what was going on. Obviously law enforcement was looking into it. And through the course of this investigation into the bombings, these, these law enforcement officers started to realize that some of the letters that, that Mark Hoffman had sold to the church didn't look quite right. And what they realized was that they, the ink that Hoffman had used, well, the ink that was on the thing, was starting to crack. And an ink that was unique to the 1800s would not have cracked in that way. So what they figured out, because they knew how the real thing worked, they started to figure out that Mark Hoffman had faked everything. 
That all these documents, all these pieces of church history for the Mormon church, they were fake because they knew and they studied the real thing. And so you study, I mean, you spot a fake by studying the real thing. These beasts, these systems, these ideologies, they're fakes. They may be convincing, but they're counterfeit. And this is why we need God's word. This is why we need worship. This is why we need community. This is why we need to be in his word, to read it and to study, not because it makes us more spiritual, but because it reveals Jesus. It reveals the true lamb sitting on his throne and it reveals the false prophets. And so these beasts can break you with their power. They can twist you with their lies. But look at verse eight. They cannot take your name. Says the lamb that was slain for you, not by making a power grab, but by laying it all aside, that he has marked you. He has called you his. Remember, um, remember in the original Toy Story when uh, Woody and Buzz are trapped in Sid's house and, and Buzz has realized that he is not a space ranger. He's just a toy, a stupid, little, insignificant toy. And Woody says this. He says, whoa, wait a minute. Being a toy is a lot better than being a space ranger. Look over there. In that house, there's a kid who thinks you are the greatest. And it's not because you're a space ranger, pal. It's because you're a toy. You are his toy. And Buzz looks down his foot. And what does he see? He sees Andy's name written on his foot. That he knows who he belongs to. He sees Andy's mark written on him. And so if you are in Christ, you bear his name. There is no number, there is no beast, there is no system, there is no government, there is nothing that can take you away from him. And being the lambs is way better than being the beasts. So y'all, this is a call for endurance and for faith, that you are marked by the lamb, and that is good news. Let's pray.